Gospel of Matthew is written to prove that Jesus, everyone say Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, a descendant of Abraham from the village of Nazareth, an authoritative preacher and miracle worker. Matthew is writing to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Messiah who in later chapters will unreasonably give his life as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins and for our eternal life. This is huge. Do you get that? That's why I repeat it because this is a very, very, very important message uh, to us and how we live and what we think um, Matthew is writing that Jesus, to prove to us that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is God. There's a little bit of a logical leap uh, to get from Jesus fulfilling uh, the Old Testament prophecies about the Christ. Remember, we talked about that in chapters 1, 2, 3. There's a little bit of a logical leap to get from Jesus fulfilling several Old Testament prophecies about Christ to the Christ being the God-man who would Himself pay the penalty for our sins. Because you understand, I can't forgive your sin to your spouse. I don't have that authority. Does that make sense? Only God can forgive your offense to God. We're laying the groundwork. We'll, we'll get it all figured out here in, in a minute. Along the way, Matthew... I did this all right first service. I don't know why I can't talk now. Too much coffee. This is the third cup of coffee. Put me over the edge. Matthew, he's writing to prove that Jesus is the God-man who's going to be the sacrifice for our sins. Along the way, Matthew necessarily... <laughs> so, you know, you know, when you're typing, it's a typo. So when you're talking and you make a mistake, it's a... Hallelujah. Thank you. Diane was the only one that was with me. This is why God gives us a good wife. Along the way, Matthew necessarily needs to prove that Jesus is not just a man, but he is God. Matthew has to prove that Jesus is God. Otherwise, we come to the end of the book and it means nothing. He has to be, Jesus has to be God. If Jesus is not fully God, then he, is, he does not have the authority or the power or the position to play God in our lives and especially to forgive us of our sins. Does that make sense? If he's not God, if he's not fully God, then he can't be playing God in our lives, and he can't forgive us of our sins. He doesn't have the authority to do that. This morning, we're headed for Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, because I'm going to tell you two of three fantastic stories, and I want you to know that they come from God's Word and that I don't just make this stuff up. In the remainder of, of uh, chapter 8... And into the beginning of chapter 9, Matthew records a series of three events that are building a theme. Here is the theme. Jesus's divine, divine meaning like godly, sovereign, Jesus's divine, everyone say divine, authority. Jesus's divine authority. It's not just any authority. It is Jesus's divine authority. If Matthew is making the case for Je that Jesus is God, then we must ask the question, what God things or what divine things did Jesus do? How can we look at the life of Jesus and know beyond a doubt 
that Jesus actually is God and not just another man, another prophet. So what is the evidence? Where is the proof that Jesus is not simply another man with great speaking abilities, but that he is actually empirically God. Matthew tells three incidents that prove Jesus's divine authority. I'm going to preach on two of them today, and this sermon is so huge, we'll have to finish it next week because the third one is just... I thought we was going to get raptured during worship service this morning singing, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God, but next week, for sure, we're going to get raptured. For sure. If not during worship, definitely during the sermon. I'm, I'm telling you. One of these days, y'all are going to see me standing on the front row, dancing around, just being happy, happy, happy. Here we go. Hopefully, you've turned to Matthew chapter 8 already. Uh, number one, Jesus' authority over nature. Jesus' authority over nature. It is reasonable to think that a God any God, would have power and authority over nature, the ability to manipulate nature. If you're going to dream up a God, he has to be a God that has power over nature. It's not reasonable to acknowledge a man as a God who suffers the same confines of nature as you and I do. If you can't do anything spectacular, then I'm not going to worship you as God. If you can't control nature better than I can, which is none at all, then I, you're, you're not God-worthy. Does that make sense? So if we're going to have a God, if we're going to prove that Jesus is God, he has to show, he has to demonstrate authority over nature. Am I correct in assuming that? Are you good with me? So we look back at history and we have the Greek gods, the Egyptian gods, we have all these gods, even modern superheroes have authority to manipulate what science has defined as the laws of nature. So you have superheroes that can defy gravity or, or you know, whatever, all these things that they can do. There is some power, some authority over nature. It serves, listen carefully, it serves no purpose to pray to a God who has no authority over nature to make your crops healthy, for instance. Whenever I was a little kid, we lived in Dalhart, Dalhart, Texas, and there were big wheat fields, and they, were, they did dry land, a lot of dry land farming. So you're dependent upon God to send rain. And I remember there's a, we called him, back then it was brother and sister. So Brother Pack, he was a dry land farmer in our church. And he would come, and it was about this time of year, if I remember right, and he would say, we need to sing that song, It's Beginning to Rain. It's a chorus we used to sing. And we would sing. And the reason he would ask is because that was his way of saying, I believe in a God that whenever I ask for rain, whenever he knows that I need rain on my crops, he is a God who has the authority and the power to actually send rain. Because if you don't believe that your God has authority over nature, then there's no need in praying for God to send rain because your God is incompetent. You, you, you with me? That's why we have gods, because they're more powerful, more authority than ourselves. It serves no purpose to pray to a God who has no authority to intervene in nature, say, to, to bless you with a healthy baby. If you've ever had a baby, you've prayed, God, give me a healthy baby. The implication is that you believe that you're praying to a God 
who can intervene into the natural circumstances and give you a healthy baby. If you didn't believe that he could have authority over nature, you wouldn't pray those things. If you have a God that doesn't have authority over nature, you need a bigger God. God, in whatever form you want to acknowledge a God, necessarily has authority over nature. Um, this is an important concept. So now, on to the text. Now, uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, we're still in this narrative part of the book. Uh, Matthew's telling the story, so you can imagine in your mind's eye um, what's going on and put yourself in the story. So here we go, verse 23. It says, Then Jesus got into the boat, and he started to cross the lake, it's a big lake, by the way, with his disciples. Okay, so Jesus got into the boat, started to cross the lake with his disciples. Suddenly, a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples, they went and woke him up, shouting. They're shouting. Oh, this is, what, these words are so profound. They're saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Got the picture? Jesus and his disciples, they're headed across the Lake of Gennesaret. Uh, we also call it the Sea of Galilee. Boop. There it is, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they've left Capernaum. That was where we were last week. And we're headed down here to Jer Jer uh, Gergesa. So different versions use different names. And so it's all in my brain and confusing. So anyway, you have a, it's a sizable lake, and their trip across is maybe five to six miles. We don't really know, I don't know exactly how far out they were, but they're out in the middle of this big lake. And from what I've read is that sudden storms on the Sea of Galilee were not all that uncommon. So it happens relatively often. However, this storm is serious enough that the wind is blowing, the boat is rocking with the waves, and the water is coming over the sides of the boat. Are you picturing this? Now, uh, in the event you don't know anything about boats, the water is supposed to be on the outside of the boat, not on the inside of the boat. Yeah, yeah, it's important to know. Once upon a time, long time ago, Diane and I went to a garage sale and they had two boats. I never owned a boat in my life. I bought two boats at a garage sale. Got it home and the next weekend we packed it all up because we were going to the lake. Before we left my driveway, it occurred to me, I don't even know how to start this thing. So I had to call the guy that I bought it from, and he coached me how to start it. Um, my point is not everybody knows how boats work. So I have to explain to you that the water should not be in the boat. It should be outside of the boat because water inside of the boat will make the boat sink. Now we see from the story the disciples are disturbed. These are fishermen. Fishermen. These are guys who have been out... When the wind and the waves is going crazy, but they're going to catch one more fish before they go home. I don't think they fish with fishing rods, but anyways, <laughs> it's better visual. So they're not afraid of a little wind. They're not afraid of a little rain. But this was, this was different. This was uncommon. This was a big storm. And Jesus is taking a nap. Now, the disciples, I picture them as a little frantic here. 
they're, they're convinced that this boat is about to sink way out here in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. So they go to Jesus and they say these words. Uh, often in scripture, I do think that their words are, are specifically chosen because they have two meanings, one for now and one looking down the road in an eschatological sense. Uh, so so the, the disciples, they say, Lord, what? Save us. Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Jesus, we're about to die here and you're taking a nap. We, Jesus, hello, Jesus, we need you to save us from dying. Just seems like these words are going somewhere, more than just the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, save us. We're dying here. We need you to do something, Jesus. Verse 26, Jesus responded, I love this. Jesus is so cool. Jesus responded, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. And suddenly there was a great calm. (laughs) Now, the disciples, they they had witnessed Jesus turning the water into wine before. They had seen Jesus heal sick people, and they had seen him heal people who were lame, and now they walked. So they'd seen Jesus do some things. They knew that Jesus, in this situation, in this boat, with the wind and the rain and the storm and the water coming in the boat, they knew that Jesus was their only hope. I have a feeling that before they woke Jesus up, it had been a long day, and so they didn't want to wake Jesus up unless they needed to. So the the storm hits, and they're they're fishermen, so they're trying to man the boat and the sails and keep it upright, and they're they're trying their best. And then they realize, we, this is beyond our ability now. So now, Jesus, we need your help. We are in trouble. You are our only hope. But while while Jesus was their only hope, they didn't have a lot of faith in Jesus. In fact, while they come to Jesus, they come afraid. Why? Why why were the disciples afraid? Well, let me see if I can explain it. They're in the boat. It's about to go down. They're scared. Jesus is the only one that's not up helping with the boat. So Jesus, wake up. We need your help to save us because we're all going to die. We don't know what you're going to do. We don't know what you can do, but we are, we are beyond ourselves and you're our only hope and we don't know what you can do now. So why would they be afraid? Well, who controls the wind? Who controls the wind? God. That's a God thing. I mean, nobody got up this morning and said... I think I would like the wind to blow from the north to the south today. No, you don't control the wind. No man controls the wind. Who has power over a storm? Well, that would be a God thing, right? Because not even kings can command big weather patterns. Who could possibly, who could possibly save these men in this boat from dying? And here's the answer to all of those questions. Only a God who has authority, 
Not just over nature in small ways, like turning water into wine. I mean, that's a cool bar trick, but, but this is very different, Jesus. We need a God who not only has authority over nature in small ways, but has the authority to command a great storm. We don't need a little bit of God. We need a big God in this scenario to save our lives. So yeah, they come to Jesus. He's sound asleep. He's not even, he doesn't even seem to care. Jesus, you're our only hope, but we really don't have a lot of hope in you because we've seen you try to man the boat before. You don't do a very good job. Jesus asks a revealing question. He says, why are you afraid? Now, this is where the passage starts to be kind of in our own business, right? Why are you afraid? Because we go through life and sometimes things happen and they're beyond our control. We're very aware that they're out of our control. They're beyond our control where we can't keep uh, ourselves and loved ones safe. And so we start to get nervous and we get fearful and it's like we come to God with our hope, but, but we really don't think he's really going to do anything. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? And then Jesus answers his own question. He says, you have so little faith. That's why, that's why we're afraid is because we don't really believe, we don't have faith in God, we don't trust that God's actually going to do what he knows is best for us. You okay? Okay. A friend of mine, years ago, long time ago, a guy named Sean, I've told this story before because it's a great illustration. Sean had a rock-crawling Jeep. You're familiar with rock-crawling Jeeps, you know? They go buy an overpriced Jeep, and then they take everything off of it, and they put more expensive stuff on it. And then they take it out in the hills, and they drive it straight up and straight down and on, on its side, and they do all these crazy things. And it's amazing what they do with the rock-crawling Jeep. Well, Sean wanted to take me in his Jeep, so I jump in his Jeep. I'm happy to jump in his Jeep. Sean's objective was to scare me, because if you've ever been in a rock-crawling Jeep, it's pretty scary, because they, go, they really do extreme things in these rock-crawling Jeeps. So I'm in it, and I know that he wants to scare me. However, I know Sean. Sean takes a lot of pride in his Jeep. He keeps it in really good condition, and I believe that he is not going to wreck his Jeep just to scare me. So my confidence, my hope, my belief, my faith is that Sean is going to keep his Jeep safe and therefore keep me safe. Does that make sense? So I didn't need to be afraid because I trust Sean, even though he's trying to scare me. Does that make sense? I can trust him. The disciples were so afraid because they didn't believe Jesus either could or Jesus would actually save them from the wind and the waves. Jesus was their only hope, but they didn't believe he could actually make the boat float once it was full of water. They didn't know, they hadn't experienced Jesus' authority over nature to this degree. They had seen some things happen in the past that were miraculous, no doubt. But this is, this is a whole new degree. This is, this is a bigger deal because it concerns their lives. 
right? You've been around church people where you're having a storm in your life and you say, well, will you pray with me? And they're like, just have more faith. I'll pray for you. I have faith that God's going to take care of that situation. It's no big deal. But whenever it's your storm in your life, you're like, oh, this is a really big deal. It's easy to have big faith for other people, but whenever it's your boat that's sinking, it's, no, no, this is a big deal. Well, now the disciples are in the boat that is sinking themselves. Someone needed wine. Jesus came through. That's pretty cool. A leper, he wanted to be healed. Jesus gave him brand new skin. That's awesome. But this situation is serious. First, because it's me and not someone else that's in jeopardy. And second, it's because this is a storm. This is nature doing its thing. It's big and it's powerful. This, this storm is completely out of the control of natural man. This storm that the disciples are in is completely out of the control of any natural Man, there's not a man in the boat, there's not a man on the earth that can stand in the bow of the boat and say, peace be still, and it'll be still, because it's not, this storm is not under the power or the control of any natural man. It is beyond natural man's control. Did you get the point? Jesus, he stood up, Ah, this is the way I picture it anyway, uh, I know I've preached this a little more dramatic in the past, but this will work for today. I think that Jesus woke up from his nap while he's sitting there on the edge of the boat or on the seat. He, he gives it a good stretch because he's had a long day and man, he was really sound asleep. He wakes up and he hears the disciples crying like a bunch of chickens. I think that he probably rolled his eyes really big, shook his head, bunch of dummies. And then, in a voice just loud enough for the disciples to hear, I don't know that it requires a shout. Depends on how you're telling the story, I guess. Just loud enough for the disciples to hear, Jesus says, Peace be still. And the wind stopped instantly. The waves stopped instantly. Jesus spoke. And nature, nature obeyed. I mean, we speak and our kids won't obey, right? You have toddlers, teenagers, young adults. Children, if you have children, you tell them whatever, go clean their room, and they're just like, you talking to me? I don't know. thought I heard something. Yeah, Jesus spoke, and nature obeyed him. The disciples immediately recognized the bigger meaning of this event. So in verse 27, here we go. The disciples were amazed. They said, who is this Man, they asked, even the winds and the waves obey him. Their response was not, oh, that's cool. That's, that's cool, like turning water into wine. That's cool. No, 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 no. Who is this man, they asked. 
Even the winds and waves obey him. They've been traveling with Jesus for a while now. They've seen him do miraculous things, but not to this level. This is a whole new, new, bigger deal. Who is this man? The implication is there is no man commands the winds and the waves. Commanding the wind and the waves, commanding a great storm is not a man thing. It is a God thing. Does that make sense? Who is this man? Because he's doing God things. In a spectacular moment, Jesus has demonstrated his divine authority over nature. Now, hopefully you got that under your belt. Oh, we're doing good. Number two, Jesus' authority over the supernatural. Jesus' authority over the supernatural. Now, to demonstrate authority over nature, that is, again, very amazing. That's incredible what, it, what Jesus is doing. It is, in fact, it is divine. It is God-size miracle. But what about all the other spiritual things that are going on? Um, spiritual or supernatural beings a very, a very real thing. Um, I think that as Christianity goes along in modern America, or modern Christianity in America, uh, we, we are pushing the supernatural more aside because I think we get so many weird ideas from movies and television. Uh, so, so we have all these crazy thoughts about what is evil and supernatural. So then we come to church and we're like, yeah, we're just going to keep God as natural as we possibly can and kind of push away the supernatural part. Uh, but that's, that would be a hazard and that would be wrong because Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, you should write that down because after I read it, you're going to be like, oh, I, gotta, I need to look that up because I think Brent's making this up. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he's, Paul writes, he says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the, this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. I mean, that's, that's pretty dark. Some, there's some spiritual, some supernatural things, some supernatural beings. There's some supernatural forces out there that... Uh, Quite frankly, of what we see from TV, they're like, you know, walking on the ceiling sort of scary things, right? Why are you looking at me like you've never seen a scary movie? <laughs> yeah, the supernatural is very real, and we tend to push it out of our Christianity because we're not sure exactly how to analyze it and, and make it fit. So Jesus can command the wind and the waves. What about those evil supernatural powers out there lurking around? Well, look at verse 28. Look at verse 28. When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake in the region of the Gadarenes, two men who were possessed by demons met him. Now picture this. You got to see what's happening, what's going on. Uh, yeah. They came out of the tombs and were so violent that no one could go through that Area. So after a bewildering boat ride across the lake, they, Jesus and the disciples, they arrive at the shore and they are met by not one but two clearly demon-possessed men. As if living among the tombs in the graveyard was not scary enough, people avoided this whole area because these men were so unpredictably 
violent. We have seen these men do crazy feats, things that were beyond the strength of a human man. So we know that there's something supernatural happening in these men. They are demon-possessed. Like I said, modern Christianity, act like it doesn't happen anymore. Verse 29, they, this is the two men, two demon-possessed men, they began screaming at Jesus. Are you picturing this? They just get onto the shore. These men walk up. They are visibly demon-possessed. They start screaming at Jesus. And then you know that the disciples, man, they're getting back in the boat as fast as they can. Hurry, 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 hurry. And they're rowing and they get the sail up. We got to go. That's the way I picture it in my mind anyway. <laughs> no, that's not what happened. Read the text. They began screaming at him. So the demon-possessed men, they're screaming at him, why are you interfering with us, son of God? Oh, man. Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? So you have these two demon-possessed men, more accurately, the demons inside of them. They recognize Jesus, but they don't recognize Jesus as just a man. It's not like, oh, look, it's Jesus from Capernaum. We've heard about this guy. He does some crazy miracles. That's really cool. No, 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 no. They recognize him as the son of God. Now who's scared? They recognize him as the son of God. Now, now in Matthew, Jesus has referred to himself earlier as the son of man. He's making an implication about being the son of God, but it's only an implication. He doesn't do it yet. Here, the demons, the supernatural demons, they acknowledge the deity of Jesus. They acknowledge that Jesus is God. The demons, the supernatural entities, recognize Jesus as God. These demons are not just crazy, they're intelligent. They're aware of God's plan for their future. They say, have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? Jesus, this isn't fair. You're here before you're supposed to here. be here. You're not, you're not supposed to be picking on us yet. There's a time that God has appointed for you to pick on us, and it's not now. Jesus wasn't there to pick on the demons. Let's look at verse 30. What happened to be, a, there, there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding in the distance. So the pigs, pardon me, the demons begged. You got to get this in the, picture of this in your head, get it right. Who's in authority here and who's scared? The demons begged. If you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. So the demons begged. They did not put up a fight. You know that if you've heard me talk about spiritual warfare before, you know that I get frustrated when we make spiritual warfare this toe-to-toe -to -toe battle where Satan is versus God and, oh, who's going to win and what are we going to do? And, oh, it's so scary and we have to be, you know, fight, 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 fight. It's not the picture. It's not the picture. Not in Scripture anyway. It's not the picture. They begged like undisciplined five-year-olds wanting ice cream. They begged. They didn't fight. They begged. That's the picture. There's the authority. Jesus has all the authority. And they don't. So they beg 
These demons, even before exchanging words, they recognized the authority of Jesus in this situation. They begged to be put into the, demon, into the pigs. I don't know why I keep mixing that up. They begged to be cast into the pigs. And then verse 32, you know I like the New Living Translation, but here uh, I think it kind of falls short. Um, whenever I write my translation, I'm going to make it better, okay? He says, be, be, the reason is that New, New Living Translation uses three words here where other translations just use one word. And you can figure that out on your own. Verse 32, Jesus says, all right. What does he say? Go. That's the word. Jesus, Jesus simply, you have these two demon-possessed men who are unpredictably violent. They are tearing up the graveyard. They're as scary as they possibly can be. They come to Jesus. Why have you come to mess with the Son of God? And they say, please spare us and let us go into the pigs. And Jesus says, Go. That's it. Oh, Jesus, you can do better than that. Hollywood does better than that. Jesus is so anticlimactic. They beg, go. And what do they do? Oh, we should read the text. Go, Jesus commanded them. So the demons came out of the men and entered the pigs, and the whole herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Jesus spoke one word, go, and the demons went. You remember several weeks ago in our text, there was the Roman official who comes to Jesus and he says, I understand authority. So all you have, I'm summarizing the story. All you have to do is speak the words and it will be done. He had a sick servant that was about to die. And the Roman official understands the authority of God to speak and it to be done. And, and so Jesus says, all right, your servant is healed. And that was it. And then here we see Jesus speaks again, go, go. And the demons went. Do you see this exchange? Jesus is not begging. Jesus is not bargaining. Uh, Jesus simply speaks and the demons go. No argument. That is authority over the supernatural. We need to be careful that we do not personify spiritual warfare as this agony, this antagonistic, this back and forth. We put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and whenever he says go, demons flee. That is what the scripture says. So how did the people react to Jesus uh, casting the demons out of these two men with one word? In verse 33, the herdsmen, they fled to the nearby town. <laughs> they just lost their pigs. This is not good. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town, telling everyone what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And this is exciting news. It's not good news. Not good news for the herdsmen. It's not really good news for the village uh, because they just lost all of their, you know, ribs, bacon. I mean, I don't know how you make green chili stew without some pigs. But anyways, it's a side point. They go into town and it's kind of a two-part story. It's like, you guys will not believe what happened. This man just cast the demons out of the two demon-possessed guys. And everybody knows what they're talking about. Part two is he went into the pigs and or the demons went into the pigs and the pigs went over the hill. So now we don't have any... We don't have a herd of pigs anymore, so it's not good. Verse 34, then the entire town came out to meet Jesus, but they begged him to go away and leave them 
alone. I just think that's intriguing. It is one thing to be afraid of the limited power of evil. Now, I'm intentionally saying the limited power of evil because Hollywood has us convinced that evil somehow has unlimited power, and that's not biblical at all. We can make the case over and over in Scripture that evil is limited, that, well, God controls it over and over. We see the power of evil is controlled by God. It's an entirely different kind of fear to know that there is a God-man who is present with you, who commands, who has authority, and the demons immediately obey. Now, we're afraid of the evil demons, but man, when someone else comes along and has the power to say, boo, and demons flee, that's pretty scary. That's a big deal. The people were more terrified of Jesus' authority and power over the supernatural than they were afraid of the two demon-possessed men. Did you catch that? They were more afraid of Jesus than they were of the two demon-possessed men. Why were they fearful of Jesus? Well, because he had demonstrated, he had just visibly demonstrated authority over the supernatural that only a supreme God could possess. This man who just came to shore from a boat and has cast out this demon, this man, he possesses the authority of God. And he's standing here with us. You should be nervous. See, I think that this is an incredibly important message to the modern church because we have, we've made God, we've made Jesus familiar. He's just good old boy. We ask him and he do, does things. He does things for us. He does things for us. We make him just our brother. And it's just this common, familiar relationship. And we've lost the importance that we serve the living God. And that when we pray, we're not praying to our brother Jesus. We are praying to the son of the living God, who is God. Does that make sense? Jesus demonstrated all the authority of the God of the kingdom of heaven and the God over the kingdom of earth. Jesus demonstrated all authority over nature and all authority over the supernatural. So why? Why is it so important to Matthew to tell these stories demonstrating Jesus' divine authority? Here is why. Why is it important for you and me Actually, I have one more question, and then I'll tell you why. Why is it important for you and me to see Jesus demonstrate his power over nature? Why is it important for you and me to see Jesus demonstrate his power, his authority over nature and over the supernatural? Here is why. It's about faith. It's about what you believe to be true about Jesus. Because what we believe about Jesus shapes how we interact, how we react to the kingdom of this earth. See, if I believed that Sean would wreck his Jeep to scare me, I would have been terrified in that Jeep. 
But I knew that Sean is going to keep his Jeep and me safe. And so I can ride in his Jeep and just have a good time, genuinely enjoy the ride. We come along to Jesus and we don't really trust that he has authority over nature. Or we don't really trust that he has authority over the supernatural. So we live our lives like scared little kids. And we never know what's lurking in the darkness that's going to jump out and mess with your life or the lives of someone you love. So we live in fear instead of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we believe that this God-man we call Jesus actually possessed the power and the authority to manipulate nature and to command supernatural entities to accomplish his will, when we believe that, then, then we will live with confidence in Jesus to accomplish his will in our lives Instead of us living in fear of what nature might accidentally do or what some other evil entity might do. Do you see how when our faith is in a God with all authority, it sucks all the fear and evil out of the equation because he's got the whole world in his hands. Is it that simple, Brent? It really is. It really, really, really is. If we're like the disciples and we're scared of the storm, whether natural or supernatural, then Jesus says, you have such little faith. But when we know who's in the boat with us, when we know bigger than who's in the boat with us, when we know who controls nature and who controls all the supernatural entities, when we know who has all of the the divine authority, then we can live our life and enjoy it because we know that God has got it and he's a merciful God. There's no reason for you and me to be like the disciples and treat Jesus as though he is our last hope but we really don't believe that he can do anything about our physical or spiritual situation. Church, Jesus has divine authority. You gotta wrap your soul around that. Jesus has all divine authority. Jesus has proven himself to be God over the kingdom of heaven as well as over the kingdom of this earth. We No, because Matthew has told us the story that Jesus is God. Therefore, we place all of our hope in him and we have faith that he will calm the storm and that he will deliver us from evil. 